Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 56, and from fear to faith. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that all that it says is for our good. It's for our life and godliness. It's And because it is true, Lord, you make demands on our lives. You show us the truth. You show us the way. And you point us very clearly from your word to the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, if we're struggling today with anxiety or fear or or something else, Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we go through Psalm 56, that we would see very clearly the hand of the Lord at work, not only as he works through and in the life of David, but also as you work in and through our lives, as we are yours and you are ours forever. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word is sufficient. We thank you that your word has something to say to us. And also, Lord, that it very clearly calls us to a response to obey. And so, Lord, wherever we are on the spectrum today, whether we're seeking you or we are found by you and we are united to you by faith in your name, Lord, I pray that you would use our time together now in your word to uh, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your precious name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 56 and hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can the flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against, are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they waited for my life. For their crime will they escape in wrath that cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept... Uh, count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the days when I call. This I know that God is for me, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. What can flesh do to me? This is the question posed by this psalm. And as we look out at the news, you know, we see that human beings can do quite a lot. We 
have seen in the last two years with COVID and, you know, Antifa and on and on and on, what man can do, the evil of man. But what can flesh do to me? Humans can kill you, betray your trust, steal your money, your dreams, tear away your heart. And knowing this, the writer of Psalm 56 speaks frankly to us, telling us that he is afraid. And if we're honest, so often we are as well. Now, the author of this psalm is Israel's King David, one of the great men of the Bible. David wrote at a time when he was vulnerable, when he was weak, he was frightened by pursuers who sought to take his life. And yet in Psalm 56, he combats his fear with faith, and he teaches us to do the same. Two voices call back and forth in much the same manner that fear and faith contend in our hearts. And first is the voice of fear, which we hear in verses 1 and 2, and again in verses 5 and 6. Encountering is the voice of faith, which takes up the great refrain of this psalm in verses 3 through 4 which says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. What can flesh do to me? Now, first, we hear the voice of fear, which starts off this psalm in verses 1 through 2, which says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And so David prays for help because of the fury of his attackers. He's hotly pursued with no relenting in verses five and six he says all day long they injure my cause all their thoughts are against me for evil they stir up strife they lurk they watch my steps as they have waited for my life david's enemies want to ruin his reputation and they further want to bring an end to his very life now according to the superscription here psalm 56 was composed at one of the lowest points of david's life when the Philistines seized him in Gath, our text says. And after David killed the, the giant Goliath, he rose quickly to fame and prestige within the kingdom. And this caused King Saul to envy him as a rival. And though even though David was completely loyal, Saul's animosity forced the young hero to flee. 1 Samuel 20 through 22 tells of this desperate flight during which he sought aid from the priests at Nob. They gave him bread as well as a sword that David had taken from Goliath, which, which had been kept there. And when Saul learned of this help, which had been innocently given, he had all the priests ruthlessly put to death. Desperate and even panicked, David fled from Israel altogether. He decided to enter Philistia, home to Israel's chief enemies, perhaps thinking they would welcome a fugitive from King Saul. David ended up in Gath, one of the leading Philistine cities. And when he got there, he realized what a mistake he had made since Gath was Goliath's hometown. Imagine the people of that town setting their eyes on the very man who had single-handedly overthrown their cherished hopes of victory by slaying their great champion. Adding great insult to injury, he had the audacity to bear the sword of the de their deceased hometown hero. And so far from embracing David, who now realized that he must have been crazy to come here, the servants of King Ahash came to him demanding David's head. Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands in 1 Samuel 21, 11. That is tens of thousands of Philistines. In fact, the biblical account tells us that David was much afraid in 1 Samuel 21, 12. And we can see 
him as they laid hands on him, saying, I must have been crazy. I must have been crazy. And this way he devised his plan. I'm just going to be crazy. And so he says in twenty in 1 Samuel 21, 13, he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beards. Now, the superstitious Philistines believed they would be cursed for harming a crazy man. So David's ruse succeeded in saving not only his life, but also his dignity. And yet, what an embarrassing episode for David. This account reminds us that the Bible doesn't gloss over the details of its characters. It tells us about the truth, about sin, and the desperate folly of its heroes. In fact, the account also tells us what tends to happen when we take matters into our own hands, when we trust in our own sufficiency, when we seek to save ourselves through worldly means rather than trusting in God. In fact, we might even think, well, my plan worked, and maybe it did, and we might wriggle wiggle our way to safety, but how often we end up degrading ourselves in the process. Think about that for a minute. You're in the midst of a, of a time when perhaps you're going through a trial. Maybe that's a financial issue. Maybe that's a marital issue. Maybe that's a family issue. Maybe you're dealing even with a family member who has uh, an illness, a debilitating illness, and how easy it is to, to turn on the news, to turn on a movie and just drown out everything. And yet the Bible doesn't call us to do this. The Bible doesn't call us to minimize the reality of life. In fact, James says very clearly to us in James 1, 2, and 3, to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces uh, endurance or patience. Jesus in John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have tribulation. All one has to do is look at the, the book of Acts and see the trouble that following Jesus wholeheartedly in discipleship means. And that is why we must not rest on our own laurels. We must not rest on our own merits. We must not rest on our own achievements. We must rest in the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. He alone is enough for us. He alone is enough for us when we're struggling with anxiety and fear and, and discouragement. He's enough. He's enough. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't go for a walk. That doesn't mean that you can't enjoy your favorite hobby or, or some entertainment and that can help. I'm not saying that. But too often, those are the things that we run to first rather than we run to the Lord. That's my point. My point is, don't run away from the hard realities, the rough edges of life. Don't just run immediately to the entertainment. Don't just run immediately to your favorite hobby. Don't immediately even just run to the other person. Run to the Lord. <coughs> run to the Lord. He's the one that's going to help you. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your frailty, in the midst of your hurt and your struggles, he alone is enough. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says that he understands what we're going through. Now, 
it's noteworthy to, to say that the Bible shows no record of David's praying during his flight from Nob to Gath. No wonder he fell into air. His disgrace seems to have jarred him into his senses. David's fleshly strategies having only led him from the fire into the pot, but now he was ready to turn again to the Lord. David had lost hold of God and, and fallen into folly, but God had not let him go. Having escaped, David in Psalm 56 returns to the Lord in prayer. In fact, the note of thanksgiving with which he ends argues that David wrote this psalm not during but after his captivity in Gath. He was still desperate with no choice but to return to the lands of King Saul. And thus the voice of fear that once again rose in his throat. This time, however, fear did not lead him to folly or even self-reliant strategies as we're so often guilty of. And having remembered God, David was led by his fear to turn to the Lord in faith. Psalm 56.3 says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Many believers find it takes fear to spur us on to faith. God places us in uncomfortable situations in which we're frightened and even unsettled. Many, many Christians believe the statement that, that God will not give me more than I can handle, and yet, in the Bible, what we see is God gives us more than we can handle. You look at Joseph and you ask Joseph, Joseph, did, did God give me more than I can handle? And, and Joseph's answer would be yes. So God gives us more than we can handle. We see it in the life of David. God gave David more than he could handle so that he would trust the Lord. God is going to give us more than we can handle so that we will not rest in ourselves, but that we will find our rest and our joy not in the things of this world, but that as we'll do as the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, that we're to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. See, Jesus alone is enough for us, and he always will be. We're not enough. We need this reminder. We need to trust the Lord in the midst of the struggles, in the midst of the hurts, in the midst of the discouragement, in the midst of pain, in the midst of every season of life. God places us in these uncomfortable situations in which we're frightened and unsettled. He does it to provoke the response of faith. Peter emphasizes this in his first epistle that trials come so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.7 says. The response that God desires from us is the one that David exhibits here in Psalm 56.3, which says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And so David recovered faith, provided the chorus of Psalm 56, occurring in verse 4 and then slightly altered uh, in, in an altered form in verses 10 through 11. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And here we see that the key ingredient of faith is trust. Saving faith is not merely assenting to true statements or to the idea of God. It is trust. To trust is to rely on someone or something, in this case, rely on God for salvation. And when we trust, we're ready to act with confidence. Having an object of trust establishes a bulwark against fear. 
David's faith sees God and finds him a trustworthy source of protection, help, and blessing. And so David is no longer afraid. And so we can imagine David is writing this psalm not only with a pen in his hand, but also with the sword of Goliath across his knees. We can see him gazing on that mighty weapon as he wrote, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, 11. The sword would have reminded him of his greatest triumph. Goliath had terrified all of Saul's soldiers because of his giant size and strength. But David stood for trusting in God, and Goliath had failed to harm him. You can come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, David called out. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you from my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head for the battle is the Lord's. 1 Samuel 17, 45-47 says, This was how David obtained the sword having slain the giant and even cut off his head. He had trusted God. He had looked onto the battlefield and saw not merely a giant man, but also the giant God who tired, towered high above this giant man. He remembers now having trusted in God and having more recently humiliated himself in Gath by his fearful unbelief. And so David regathers himself. He re reclaims the faith with which he had earlier conquered in verse 11, he says, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What a difference there is between that kind of faith and mere fleshly bravado, pump, uh, chest pumping, that kind of thing. David trusted in God because of his knowledge of who God is in his might, in his faithfulness, in his love. J.B. Felix speaks of how important it is to know the truth about God in a little book titled, Your God is Too Small. And he says this, the trouble with many people today, he says, is that they have not found a God big enough for modern needs. And so Philip then describes the way in which religious people have cultivated petty views of God. They think of God as only a nagging conscience or a grand but idle old man as a distracted managing director too busy to meet our needs or as a, as a meek and mild Jesus who is too sentimental to interfere or again a spiritual Santa Claus to whom we send our list of Christmas wishes. How far these ideas are from the God of the Bible, who we send, who is sovereign, who is almighty, who is all-knowing, who is perfect in holiness, power, and love. God proclaims in Scripture in Isaiah 43, 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. David knew and trusted a God who towers above the world and who cares for his people. If I trust in God, he reasons, what can man do to me, Psalm 56, 11 says. Or as Psalm 56, 4 says, what can flesh do to me? What can flesh do in opposition to a deity? Isaiah 46 through 8 says, all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And this, this explains why we need to study the attributes of God. Our faith, like David's, is no, is no stronger than its object. When we know who and what God is, we find that our faith is made strong so as to conquer all fear. Now, David not only trusts the Lord, he also shows how strong faith is grounded in God's word. 
He says in verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. And so in David's case, God's word would include statements made by God to him personally. Through prophets such as Samuel and Nathan, which he remembered and trusted in his darkest hours. David would have also thought about God's written word, which in his day consisted of the five books of Moses. David had heard about the time when Israel's uh, Israel's back was to the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down on her. Moses commanded the people to trust God, and he parted the Red Sea waves. And this and other biblical passages and stories would have confirmed to David that the Lord saves those who call on him in faith. David's own contributions to the Bible and the Psalms strongly emphasize that God saves those who trust in him. And so he summarizes his understanding of faith in God's word in Psalm 22, 4. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. Believers today will likewise find courage to trust in God through the sure and the steady testimony of his word. In fact, believing the Bible defines what a Christian is. Someone who believes God's word and on its authority trusts God to be his or her savior. And it is especially in the Bible's promises that we find confidence to trust God. J.C. Ryle says this, There are shalls and wills in God's treasury for every condition. About God's infinite mercy and compassion, about his readiness to receive all who repent and believe, about his willingness to forgive, to pardon, and absolve the chief of sinners, about his power to change hearts and alter our corrupt nature, about the encouragement to pray and hear the gospel and draw near to the throne of grace, about strength for duty, comfort in trouble, guidance and perplexity, help and sickness, consolation in death, support under bereavement, happiness beyond the grave, reward and glory. About all these things, there is abundant supply of promises in God's word. Amen to that. Amen. Now, David trusted in God. He trusted in the word of God. And for Christians, this same faith is focused on the person and the work of Jesus, God's son, as the Savior and Lord in whom all may trust and be saved. In fact, the Gospels are filled with Jesus' many I will statements. He promises rest to weary souls in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives confidence to look beyond the grave in John six forty when he says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus assures his followers that, that all will be well when he says in John 14, 18 through 19, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you because I live. You also will live. Such promises have given vast number of the people of God hope and joy, even in the face of death and torture. We can do the same in lesser trials and lesser dangers that we face every day. In fact, two of the greatest statements that the New Testament makes about Jesus Christ are drawn from verses in David's psalm. Psalm 56, 13, thanks God, because you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from uh, falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. It is probable that Jesus had this verse explicitly in mind when he declared in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so when we look to Jesus in trusting faith, he promises to light our path in the way of eternal life, just as David, for all of his dangers, was confident of finding a way to safety. The writer of Hebrews also picks up on David's assertion from Psalm 56, 4, 
which says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says. And so the author of Hebrews was writing to believers being tempted to abandon the gospel because of persecution. But to abandon our faith in Christ is to turn from the only help that is greater than the oppression of the world. You see, Jesus Christ invites everyone to receive a full, a comprehensive, a secure salvation through faith in his word. He calls to sinners and offers forgiveness to the weak, offering strength to the blind, granting spiritual sight, and to the spiritually dead, offering eternal life. Jesus tells his people that whatever the world may do to our bodies, he will preserve our souls. We may be afflicted for a little while. Our bodies can be made to suffer. Our hearts may be broken. But the wounds afflicted by mortal man cannot touch the eternal treasures stored for us in Christ. In fact, for the Christian, all things are made to work for our good as, as fear gives way to faith and sorrows draw us near to Christ. Jesus shed his blood to save us from sin in the world. Safe in his hands, we can say with David in Psalm 56, 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? But Psalm 56 also shows us that when fear, when faith meets fear, the believer receives courage to live for the Lord. In fact, this is the very thing that we need if we're going to honor God and make our lives count for the kingdom of God. Christian counselor Edward Walsh has written a, a book titled, When People Are Big and God Is Small. This is how we must live, Welch argues, fearing man instead of God. And so it means that we must fear God rather than fear man. He lists the things that people fear, such as humiliation, rejection, emotional, even physical harm. Fearing these and not looking to God in faith, they are controlled by other people. Their behavior is dictated by what people do, what they think, what they say, and their attitudes are shaped by how they think people perceive them. This goes on throughout all of life. As teens, they give in to peer pressure. As adults, they become people pleasers. If, if it gets bad enough, we label them as codependent. In every case, the real problem is fear of man in the place of the fear of God. And so Welsh says the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. And so when we looked at Psalm 54, we discussed Martin Luther as a man who looked for God to be his helper. This is because Luther was a man who feared the Lord and did not fear man. Luther comprehended God's holy majesty, the gravity that attends to the ways of God, and the eternal seriousness of God's judgment. And so compared to these, the threats of man paled into significance. And frightened for his soul, Luther joined a monastery seeking salvation by coming a monk. Fearing God, he was de deter not deterred by his father's criticism. And as he went along, Luther could not accept the Roman Catholic system of works righteous. Why? Because he feared a great and awesome Lord. In his soul, Luther knew that no papal pronouncement or any other insurance of man would grant him acceptance with the holy, great, and terrible God. R.C. Sproul has written of the insanity of Luther because seeing in the Bible how great was a sin, Luther would die in torment if he could not find a true way of forgiveness before on the unyielding justice of the mighty God. And in terror for his soul, Luther searched the Bible and there discovered the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ alone. Luther's breakthrough came from meditating on Romans 1.16, which says in the gospel, the rights of God is revealed from faith for faith as is written. The righteous shall live by faith. 
Luther saw the gospel as being great enough to answer God's just law, providing the righteousness of Christ by grace to all who believe. Luther's fears were turned to faith when when he comprehended the glory of the gospel and the cross of God's Son and in his resurrection, and there Luther took his stand. And it's not surprising that once Luther knew himself to be justified through faith in Christ's blood, nothing could move him from his place of safety. Like David, Luther's faith conquered his fear. After Luther had written his first books against Roman Catholicism, he was summoned to appear before the Diet of Worms in 1521 with the threat of the torch before him. Called the recant of his teachings, Luther explained, I must walk in the fear of the Lord. My conscience is captive to the word of God, he says. I cannot and will not recant anything. God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. This is the courageous faith that we need today. And it can be found in the same place Luther found it and David found it, namely in the word of God. Whoever accounts just as much when we fear the Lord, not fearing man in the little affairs of our lives as it did in the great deeds of men such as Martin Luther. You see, when you refuse to give in to the sexual mores of a perverted society like ours, when you proclaim Christ in the face of ridicule, when you refuse to cheat or lie, and when you claim your standards and pursue your goals not in accordance with the decadent culture's rules, but from the living word of God, then God is praised in heaven and on earth. Facing fear with faith, we may say what David said in Psalm 56, 11. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And if we're going to walk with integrity before God, if we're going to make a difference in our time, it's going to come from the courage of a fearless faith. And let me be clear about something. We are facing challenges, brothers and sisters, on every side to biblical authority and a biblical worldview. We must, that is why we must be reading and studying and meditating are on the word, why we must be in a local church where we're getting fed the word, where we can do life with God's people under biblically qualified male pastors. We ourselves need to be reading and studying the word because there is so much false teaching out there. There are so many people who are wanting you to have that. They want your ears to be tickled. They want you to not hear the truth. Paul warns about these kinds of teachers in 2 Timothy 4. But he also charges those who preach and teach. He charges them in uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1, to preach the word. And in Acts 20, the elders of Miletus are called to preach the word, the whole word, the whole counsel of God. We need to be people Christians who are grounded in and shaped by the word. We need to remind ourselves again and again and again of the truth of scripture. This is why I need you and you need me. We're we're living in a time uh, with the rise of transgenderism and the LGBTQ plus agenda. Uh, uh, We have even a White House who says that they have the backs of those. And and we have a government uh, in, in so many states now in, in our union that is telling us, you know what? You as a parent, you have zero rights, zero rights. And so if your child decides to be homosexual or transgender especially, then you have zero rights. You have zero right to tell your kid who and what they are. And in this culture, we need to be clear. 
in this culture that says it's all about me and what I feel and what I see and what I envision, we need to be clear about one thing. The Lord is still the king. The Lord is still the creator. He is the one who made us and fashioned us, as Psalm 139 says, in our mother's womb. He is the one who made us from, he made man from dust. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, and he took from uh, Adam's rib and made Eve. This is still the same God. I read from Hebrews 13, 5 and verse 8 earlier. And those passages make clear the immutability of God, that our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will always remain the same because he is a holy and a just and a perfect God. And what that means is you can trust him and and you should trust him. Look at all the many ways in which the Lord has provided his help to you in the past. Look at how many ways in which the Lord continues to provide not only shelter and food and help and on and on and and friends and a church and and people to speak into your life. Those those are things to be truly thankful to God for. Those are things that should remind you again and again of, of God's personal, his personal care of you. His personal concern for you. You see, our God sees us. He knows us. There is not one blade of of grass even. There is not one molecule in our body uh, over which God does not say mine, over which God does not orchestrate his sovereignty over. In fact, without his sovereign rule, there's not a way... in, in, in any, there's not any way in which any cell in our body would not function. And yet God upholds us to such a degree so that all of this many cells in our bodies function. You know, that, that, the, the fact that I'm even standing up right now, the fact that my mouth is, is, is moving, the fact that my heartbeat is, is not astronomically high, that's a testimony to the kindness and the grace of God. Just as much as it is that you're able to hear me through your earbuds, you're able to see me if you're watching this on video, and, and so on and on and on we could go. The fact is, this is God's goodness. And we need to remind ourselves, if we have a loving spouse that loves us and cares for us and walks alongside of us, we should give thanks to God. We can apply Psalm 56 through three closing observations. The first is that trust is something we learn over the course of our lives. David starts with the voice of fear. Faith rallies in verse three, but by verse five, fear has the upper hand again, giving way again to faith in verse 10. This is how our lives often go. Fear and faith struggling together. And this period in David's life, as he fled from one danger to the next, tested but then built up David's faith until it was stronger than ever. And as we're going to see when we look at Psalm 57, which was written during the very next phase of its fugitive career, rises to an even greater height. Its chorus says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth in Psalm 57, 5 and verse 11. And so the goal of our lives then is to grow strong in faith, to escape from our fears and to glorify God in all of life. And this growth from fear to faith, it takes place through our communion with God. 
Psalm 56, 8 through 9, shows how important prayer was to the recovery of David's faith. He says this, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. David is asking here the Lord not merely to record his troubles, but to treasure his tears in a bottle. He cries on God's shoulder, though he feels so long, he knows that God cares for him. It is on God's shoulder in prayer that David remembers the strength of God's arm and the compassion of God's heart. And so following his example, we will also do the same and have our growth from fear to faith measured by our increasing reliance on the grace that we receive through prayer. And his second observation comes from Psalm 56, 12. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Now this statement reveals what happens when faith overcomes fear. David is delivered from despair to thanksgiving. He looks forward to the day when he can return to the tabernacle and make offerings of thanks. The mark of an act of faith is always a humble thanksgiving that longs to in praise to the Lord. In fact, the surest sign that we're trusting God, especially in the midst of trials, is that we can give thanks to him from the heart. Now, third, this psalm concludes with the resolve and the determination that comes to those who have learned to trust the Lord. Franklin Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that that may or may not have been true of, of America when Roosevelt said it, but it's certainly true of those who trust in God. We may leave the circumstances and the dangers to his care, overcoming our fear through faith in him, and then determined to serve him with all of our lives. This is what David did, resolving to walk before God in the light of life in Psalm 56, 13. Can you rejoice with David that Christ has delivered my soul from death and has kept my feet from falling? If this is your testimony, then your, your resolution should be the same as David's. He had just emerged from one of the lowest episodes in his entire life, governed by folly and fear. But turning back to God through his word, David entered a new phase of his life that was characterized by godliness and achievement. You too, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have been delivered from fear to faith by trusting God's word, should recommit yourself wholly to him. No matter how you've stumbled or fallen in unbelief, you may be lifted up to walk before God in the light of life. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. For Christians, fear is conquered by following Jesus, who promises that those who trust in him will not walk in darkness. So look to Christ in faith for the first time. If that's you, repent to believe or if you already trusted him, once again to be cleansed by his blood, as 1 John 1, 9 says, and renewed by his spirit. Following the Lord Jesus, you're going to find that your fear will give way to a conquering faith, that the light of his life, Christ's life, will shine in and through you and light every dark path. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word, once again, as we prayed at the beginning, we thank you, Lord, that your word is true. We thank you, Lord, that you light every path of our lives as we, as we follow in the light of its truth. As we, as John 14, 15 says, we obey your commandments, which are revealed in your word by your grace through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
And so, Lord, I pray today that as we have considered this thing, as, as, as you have addressed our hearts through your word, that now that, that we have heard this message, that you would take it and it would land on the good soil of our hearts, that we would think about it, that we, we would take it in, that we would consider whether to the degree that it is biblical and helpful, that we would receive its te- the teaching of your word. And that, Lord, that it would profit our souls, that it would help us to want, desire to speak the truth and love more, to speak words that uplift and encourage one another. Because, Lord, let's face it, in the midst of the times in which we are in, we need to encourage one another while, as Hebrews 13, 13 says, while today is today, that our hearts may not be hardened. So, Lord, help us to encourage one another. Help us to walk alongside one another. Help us to speak the truth and love to one another. Help us not to be harsh with one another. Help us to help us to uh, resemble the marks and the fruits of the Spirit more and more increasingly. And Lord, where we fail, may, may you lead us, Lord, uh, like the good shepherd to repentance that you are. And by showing us, as you, as you do, through your word, help us, Lord, to walk by faith in you and the revealed word of God that you've given to us in the 66 books of Scripture. Lord, we thank you that you are true, that you are altogether beautiful, that you're altogether lovely. Help us, Lord, to fight our fear. Help us to fight our anxiety. Help us to fight our discouragement with the truth of your word, which is a sword. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We thank you that that you take the word, and as 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, you destroy lofty arguments that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. And you take the word, as John 15 and 16 even tell us, and you take the word, and you're teaching us the truth even more from Scripture. And you're pointing us more to Christ. So, Lord, where we have lacked trust and faith, Lord, we repent. Where we have where we have loved the things of the world more, Lord, we repent. Lord, where we have where we have treasured or even uh, treasured or valued uh, fear or anxiety or discouragement above you, Lord, we repent. Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, as Ephesians 5, 1 tells us. And we thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient, that you uh, you destroy every argument that raises itself against the knowledge of God because you alone are our king. You alone are our master. You alone are our are, are commander. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, which is truth. Help us now, Lord, to walk in the light and in the path of righteousness described in your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.